Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. On today's show, we'll meet a host of New Yorkers who are stuck in the past. They're reenactors, everyday people who choose to connect with the past by living it out. There's the organizer of this weekend's Fort Tryon Medieval Festival, Revolutionary War reenactors who use authentic period weapons and costumes, and a group of baseball enthusiasts who present the game as it was played in 1864. But it's not just amateur enthusiasts who are getting involved. Academics and museums are beginning to use reenactment as a way to present the past to a general audience and learn more about our history. It's reenactment today on Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. Each weekend, dozens of pickup baseball games take place in Central Park. If you encounter one particular group of players, though, you may think you've stumbled onto a movie set. These clubs play baseball as it was played in 1864, baggy hand-stitched uniforms and all. The rules are remarkably different and teach us a lot about just how far the game has progressed. But the players are no less enthusiastic and the games no less hard-fought. And one important distinction between vintage ball players and other reenactors, no one knows the outcome before the fun starts. We recently caught up with some of the Gothams playing ball on Central Park's Great Lawn. Ken Trolley Car Schlapp from the uh, New York Gothams. Um, from New York City, lived here uh, my whole life, and I've uh, been a baseball fan my whole life. I, I, I joke and call it my disease because I spend all my time playing, watching, and reading about baseball. I'm uh, David Dyett. Um, they call me Wombat in the team because I'm originally from Australia, but I live in Brooklyn now. I'm something of an amateur baseball historian uh, with regard to Brooklyn baseball and while I was researching that, I ran across one of the members of the team, and, and he put me onto it. We're here at Central Park. There's a sand diamond behind us. Uh, at the time in 1864, there was no such thing. You just played on, on plain grass, and uh, you set out the bases uh, in the best place for them, and you played basically on an open field. There was no fence to hit the ball over for a home run, or if there was a fence and the ball went over the fence, then you kept chasing it. What we like about playing 1864 ball is the one-bounce rule. It's because in 1864 was the last year that you can catch a ball in one bound or one bounce to have an out. You know, so that's kind of an interesting thing. People don't usually see that now, so we thought keeping it by those rules, by the 1864 rules, it would kind of show that little bit of uniqueness. 1865, you had to catch the ball on a fly. Uh, balls and strikes are definitely different. The way it works in 1864 is the strike zone's pretty much from the ankles to the chin and over the plate. But what's different there is they didn't call balls and strikes until either the pitcher or the striker, which is the batter, was warned. You know, so let's say if there's three straight pitches right down the middle of the plate, today you would call them strikes. Back then, the umpire probably would have let it go, and then he would have said, okay, warning to the striker, which means that any time after that, a ball going over the plate, he'd call a strike.
on the field, it's still the same nine players on both sides of the field, and you'll see an umpire. And typically, you know, the umpire may have a, a top hat and more like a tuxedo, the old-style uniforms. Uh, what people may find kind of strange is that in 1864, they think maybe they were, the players wore knickers and, and more current baseball pants. But no, it's actually more closer to jeans, blue pants that are jeans-like, and the shirt kind of, a, I guess some people say they almost look like uh, waiters' outfits because they're kind of like white and they have a bib on it. Really, the, the big equipment difference is the, that there are no gloves. You know, so we're used to playing barehanded. And it is still baseball. Some people think, okay, you were playing, is the ball a lot softer? Well... The ball is a little bit softer, and it's a little bit bigger, but it's still a baseball. So I, I, I can tell you from uh, playing third base most of my time in there that I have a few crooked fingers from uh, the ball coming pretty fast at you here and there. Nicknames, pretty much everybody in a team has a nickname, and you actually you don't get to choose your own. Generally, it happens by something that you did on the, on the field or in a practice. Like I'll give you an example. Before I get to mine, I'll tell you Spike, who plays on a team. Our very first practice, he went to clean his clean out his spikes with his hand and cut his cut his hand open so therefore he became spike uh my name's trolley car that kind of happened to a certain extent from somebody saying well trolley car is a cool name for playing back then somebody should be trolley car some rumors flew in it was because i was slow you know i'll leave that up to interpretation but that was kind of where that came from a little bit uh, I think the big motivation, really, for most people is just to get out there and play a game of ball. And whatever rules, whatever, you know, we're out there on the weekend having fun. And if we can educate a few people about the history of baseball while we're doing it, then that's all the better. Right, warning to the striker. We got him. Throw some ginger. One hand. Oh, yeah. That's David Wombat Dite and Ken Trolleycar Schlapp of the New York Gotham's vintage baseball team. Reenactment is booming. More and more amateur historians spend their weekends by donning period garb and reliving the past. Museums have begun to use reenactment to enhance the effect of their exhibits. And reality television programs now place participants in often grueling historical situations. Academics are starting to pay attention to this growing trend. The rise of reenactment is giving historians new tools to learn about the past and prompting some academics to rethink how history is taught. Vanessa Agnew is assistant professor of German studies at the University of Michigan. She's written extensively about the rise of reenactment, and she's also been a reenactor herself. Professor Agnew recently took part in the BBC program The Ship, which sent a cast of 50 on a replica of an 18th century sailing vessel. Dr. Vanessa Agnew, thanks so much for taking the time. You're most welcome. Watching a reenactment of a civil or a revolutionary war battle can be entertaining, but how educational can it truly be? It provides a marvelous first step for audience members, um, particularly those with no familiarity with the nature of a battle scene. It's exciting. There's lots of drama, typically. Certainly it's a visual spectacle. Whether it's historically accurate is another question, and I think that very much depends on which particular reenactment groups are doing the reenactment and how much input they've had probably from academic historians. So as an academic, then, you would say that there is concern about the distorting of history? Perhaps concern is too strong a word. I think that reenactors very often draw on the expertise of academic historians, and certainly there are increasing numbers of academic historians who are interested in the topic of reenactment and are trying to forge closer ties with hobby reenactors and with living history museums. There are certain um, 
certain things that need to be taken into consideration by reenactors and by the general public when they are watching and participating in these kinds of events. Certainly they need to ask perhaps what the larger aim of the reenactment project is and what kinds of political interests are being served by those reenactments. What can academics learn from reenactors? In the first instance about the general public's interest in, in history, I think that history as a subject overall is, is often sold short and that the public is actually far more interested in history than perhaps is generally thought. So academics perhaps should take some courage from that and they can learn, I think, about the need to spice up their history writing for a general market. They can learn that things like the minutiae of, of history, the, um, the costumes, the experiences um, of people participating on the battlefield or, or on, on a tall ship is of great interest and that if they can manage to bring that alive somehow that there is a far wider market for their books than they perhaps otherwise would be. Historical reenactment has been the subject of a number of television shows in recent history, including 1900 House and The Ship, which you were involved in. It was a incredible experience. About 50 participants sailed on a replica of Captain Cook's ship, the Endeavour, and we sailed from Cairns in Australia up to the up through the Great Barrier Reef and the Coral Sea and the Arafura Sea to Bali in Indonesia. The whole way we worked the ship and tried to follow um, with some degree of historical fidelity to to the conditions as they would have been in the 18th century. And on board were a group of about five academics who were there as participant consultants to try and add a more in-depth knowledge to um, to the production. It was a very testing experience and we, we had to go aloft, we had to haul on rope, we had to sleep in hammocks and eat the most atrocious food I've ever ever tasted. But it certainly gave all of us academic historians I think a new appreciation for the rigors of life at sea. Um, certainly I learned a great deal about how a ship works and I also learned something about what it's like to, to live with at very close quarters with a group of people um, and to um, to do a lot of physical labor those are the kinds of things that that one doesn't as a as an academic normally normally get to experience sitting behind one's computer all day and so I think those were those were valuable sorts of lessons to learn on the other hand, I'm not sure that my historical understanding per se was enriched by, by the experience of being terrified as I was hauling on sail, but that was certainly one of the aims of the BBC producers of the show, that academics would learn something and that the general public as a whole would learn something through the academics' um, confrontation by the limits of their own knowledge. Did you expect to be enlightened by this? Um, I personally didn't. I think that there were people who certainly did. I've always been a little bit, um, a little bit wary of what reenactment can shed light on. I think that s certainly I learned about different small details of working a ship. Um, I learned about how difficult it is to navigate and how difficult it is to throw a log line. But those are not the kinds of questions that historians um, are really much concerned with, those kinds of personal experiences. They're, on the whole, historians, I think, tend to ask far broader questions about historical processes. And so there, I think, what I learned was far more limited. Um, on the other hand, it has given me a new sense about the difficulties of writing history and, and a sense that it is very important to reach out to a wider wider audience. 
You mentioned, Doctor, that reenactors have to give up modern conveniences quite often. To what extent would you say hardship is an important part of reenacting? I think it's one of the main draw cards of reenactment. It's a bit like going on an adventure holiday. It's certainly physically challenging. It's very often emotionally challenging. There are numerous examples of reenactors who've suffered sort of psychological crises as, as a result of participating in these kinds of events. The organizers of reenactment events very often try to um, strategize so that they put their participants in the most extreme kinds of conditions possible um, to elicit that kind of drama because mostly reenactment events are not um, are not scripted and so in order for a television program to have any kind of um, any kind of drama, there needs to be something that, that is generated organically. So that um, the more stress that, that one can put the reenactor under, the more appealing the program is likely to be. Now that's obviously a ratings booster, but do you think that goes too far? I find it unnecessary. I don't think that it, it pr- produces historical insights. I think it certainly produces psychological insights. Are there any common traits reenactors share? I think it's a spirit of adventure, certainly. One has to have a certain degree of chutzpah to to participate in a reenactment and perhaps a a childhood fondness for dressing up and for fantasy role play. I think that reenactors, they are marked by their enthusiasm for the past and that kind of infectious love of history is something really salutary. And I think that almost anybody who participates in one of these events has to be able to also withstand a certain degree of mockery <laughs> and curiosity from people who don't understand that. So perhaps also there's a, a spirit of individualism that, that characterizes reenactors and perhaps also a deep-seated longing for participating in something that evokes tradition. Um, I think that that is a, a prime motivation for reenactment generally is that people are wanting to reconnect with their roots. Perhaps they've had itinerant lives and come from fractured communities and reenactment allows people who come from very different backgrounds to create a sense of a shared past even if that past is not in fact a shared one. And so there it's, um, it creates a sense of an sort of equal opportunities access to the past. I think that Very often this is not in fact the case, but it nonetheless allows people to feel that time doesn't change and the past that seems as though it was a better, more wholesome past, it allows them to reanimate that in the present. I would think it also can be very therapeutic if you're an attorney by day. It might feel pretty good to let loose and play a Viking on the weekend. I think so too. And... um, very often these are activities that entire families participate in. If somebody is playing baseball by historical rules on the weekend, then um, then their children and, and spouses can go along and take part in, in other forms as well. So I think that there's a, a strong sense in which these are, are often family activities, and that must certainly add to their appeal. There's a term that I've heard reenactors describe, and that's period rush. What is that exactly? There's a kind of excitement um, that comes from dressing up and feeling as though you are living in a different time and place. There's a tremendous sense of excitement that when you have the feeling that you're doing something authentically and that you have access to a kind of knowledge that others don't have. There's a strong claim, I think, on understanding the world and participating in, in, in a group activity that others are not privy to. And I think that that period rush 
um, that comes from sort of sleeping out in the open, um, wearing clothing that is very uncomfortable, eating a wretched diet, and um, running around on a battlefield. It's, it's almost as though one has left the 21st century and, and gone back in time. And that gives one quite a high. There has been some criticism, Doctor, that reenactors gravitate towards elite units like commandos and paratroopers, and that results in an underrepresentation of undistinguished units in the reenactment community. Do you find that at all? There are probably good reasons why why reenactors do gravitate towards um, towards elite. Certainly, um, if one is an officer, one has a better looking uniform and a tastier diet and more comfortable place to sleep. That is undoubtedly adds to the appeal. But I think that the reenactment generally is a form of history from below. It's history for everybody. It's it it's a it's a kind of egalitarian. It has an egalitarian populist tendency, and so that, to some extent, works against the charge that, that, that you've just made. Would you say that historical reenactment is growing in popularity? It certainly seems to me to be the case, uh, to be growing in popularity. This may have something to do with the fact that um, there have been highly successful television programs with terrific ratings dealing with historical topics. And I think that there's a gen- uh, an interest in history generally. But I've speculated uh, at some length about why there are increasing numbers of reenactment groups that seem to be springing up all over the country. And I think that perhaps one reason for this is that communities uh, in, in a time where, where, this, where people move around a great deal, where there are no longer extended families. I think that taking part in, in reenactment events allows for people to feel the sense of connection, a connection with a past that has in some sense been fractured. Um, so p- perhaps those are two important reasons why reenactment ha- is becoming a more popular genre. And certainly within the academy, reenactment is a burgeoning field. There are huge numbers of conferences dealing with reenactment. There, um, I'm editing a series on, on reenactment with um, a number of other academics. I envision that there will be a great many books coming out by academic historians dealing with the topic in, in, in coming years. And while reenactment is largely focused on what you may learn in grammar school, like the Revolutionary War or the Civil War, it also has branched out to include many other things, including earthquake survival, reenactment, and things of that nature. I think that certainly has something to do with the popularity of shows like Survivor and Lost. Reenactment shows that deal with those kinds of topics combine adventure travel with the imprimatur of history. Dr. Vanessa Agnew, thanks so much. Thank you. Vanessa Agnew is Assistant Professor of German Studies at the University of Michigan. You're tuned to Cityscape on WFUV. I'm George Borarki. This week, we're looking at the phenomenon of historical reenactment. If you want to podcast this or any of our past shows, be sure to visit WFUV.org. You can also find a bulletin board there. We'd love to read your comments.
New Jersey resident Amy Northrop Adamo is the director of the Francis Tavern Museum in Lower Manhattan. But her drive to connect with the New York of the late 1700s goes beyond her museum work. Amy is also part of a close-knit community of Revolutionary War reenactors. We recently caught up with her at her home in New Jersey, where she stores her reenactment equipment, cannons and all. Here we are at your home in Bogota, New Jersey, and you have a cannon in the trailer of your backyard. Why is that? Well, it's my cannon. It was my husband's cannon. He recently passed away, and uh, we are members of Dowdy's Artillery Company, which is a reenactment group that recreates the American Revolutionary War. How long have you been involved in reenacting? I've been involved about 12 years. My husband had been involved for over 25 Now, is this cannon authentic from the Revolutionary War? It is. It's a reproduction of a three-pound field cannon of Verbruggen. It's a little on the small side, which is good because we move it around, and it's heavy. And we don't have always the horses and things that they had during the Revolutionary War to move it. What else do you have in here besides the cannon? Well, we have tents. We have tables. We have pots, um, other kinds of cookware. We have cots for sleeping on. We have all the different equipment that goes with the cannon. Tell me about the community that's involved. Who are these people? They're all great history enthusiasts. They come from all different walks of life. You have lawyers, you have truck drivers, you have people that work for the phone company, all different kinds of folks. But the one thing that unites them is their love for history and their desire to show this to the public and to help everyone to remember what it took to found our country. What's it like to live another time? It makes you appreciate your conveniences in the 21st century. It's the greatest escape that you can have. Yes, you have your cell phone with you, but you tend to turn it off and not worry about it. And it's a slower kind of pace. What role do you play in a reenactment? My husband was one of the officers of our artillery company, so I was the officer's wife. Women in the Army had a very, very hard role to play. Many families did follow the soldiers into battle because they had no other choice. They took care of laundry, they nursed the sick, they mended clothing, they received half rations, uh, and they did not go with the army. They were behind with the baggage. What kind of outfits do you wear when you're out there? Well, it depends on, on what I'm doing. If I'm just in camp, we always wear a shift uh, and stays and petticoats and a jacket or a short gown. Getting dressed up, there's different social events. Uh, we wear gowns. I'm working right now on a new silk gown. How do you decide who's on which side when you do a Revolutionary War reenactment? It's based on what impression different reenactors do, like we do American artillery. There are other reenactors that do British grenadiers, uh, and they have all the uniforms, and they have the big furry hats, and they study the history of their unit. They recreate a specific unit, and there's all different kinds of units. There's a fabulous unit in Connecticut, um, 2nd Continental Dragoon, Sheldon's Horse, that come out actually with horses and with all the shiny accoutrements that these dragoons would have had. And it's fabulous to see them, and they put a lot of work into it. The people on your battlefield, do they come from all over the country for these events? Mostly the Northeast. There is one gentleman that comes, I think there's more than one, but we know one personally that comes from England to do some of the bigger events. I know he's going to be at Yorktown. 
And my friends, when we were visiting England, once actually met this gentleman quite by chance on the train and got into a conversation. And he said, well, I have a very unusual hobby. I reenact the American Revolutionary War. And they just started laughing. And... <laughs> And he was wondering what they were laughing at. And they said, well, we reenact the American Revolutionary War, too. Amy, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. It's been fun for me, too. Amy Northrop Adamo is a Revolutionary War reenactor from New Jersey. One of the most popular forms of historical reenactment is the Renaissance Festival. The fall is the season for these festivals. In fact, Manhattan's very own medieval festival is taking place tomorrow at Fort Tryon Park, we reached performance director Eileen Merle Rao by phone this week as she was preparing for tomorrow's festivities. Eileen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. You're very welcome. What is it about the Middle Ages that appeals most to you? The chivalry. Life was easier back then. We didn't get all bogged down with electronic, <laughs> the electronic age. A lot more family-oriented. But again, the chivalry. How long have you been involved with the medieval festival here in New York City? 21 years. I'll say 21 because there were actually two years where it didn't take place. So I've actually been involved with it since 1984, and I started as one of the singers. And what did that involve? I was singing either music of the period or what I was doing was actually putting my own music to poems of the period. And I was actually I was singing a cappella, so I was a one-woman show. What's your role as the performance director? Do you do a casting call? No, I really don't. Uh, we're actually not-for-profit, and so that doesn't allow me the time, money, placement uh, to do any sort of casting like that. What I do is I go to other Renaissance fairs. If I see somebody that, that I like as an actor, I know they've already gone through the education, and then I, I, will, I possibly will talk to them afterwards. Doing live outdoor theater is different than working in an off-Broadway show or Broadway show off-off-Broadway. Why don't you explain that difference? What makes it different to be at a fair? The idea of being in character for six hours at a time and to not break character if somebody, somebody comes to you with a personal question. Um, I mean, years ago it, in, uh, in Tuxedo, New York, for the, for the centennial of the town of Tuxedo, uh, there were a few of us representing the New York Renaissance Festival, and it was called Festival back then. And I wouldn't even break character for one of the reporters who was trying to get my information because he had just taken a photograph of me. And so the next day, the front page of the newspaper ran, Eileen Merle of Clada, Ireland, and other people from the New York Renaissance Fair celebrate Tuxedo's centennial. So I was, but I was trying to explain to this gentleman that in the future, I would be from the West, I, I would have family that was in the West Shire, the West Chest Shire, trying to give him the idea that I was from Westchester. He didn't catch on. <laughs> what kind of mental preparation goes into that? for any character that you'd be doing in general, I would, I would think. It's not so much mental preparation, but more physical stamina and just stamina as far as just trying to think up a lot of good banter, good improvisational lines for people. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of what I appreciate is some good what we call hit-and-run improv. Well, somebody will you know, come up to you, do a line or two in character, and then go on to the next person. Where do you turn for research? How do you develop the character? Well, that would depend. If you're coming up with your own character... Um, maybe it was something that you thought of completely on your own. Maybe it's uh, got an idea from a movie or a book. But if it's the character that they have given you, then you have a place to start, and then you can expound from there. Is there pressure, though, to make sure that it is authentically medieval? No. 
No, we, uh, as a matter of fact, some of the characters that I have created myself, I call them the Calm Clan. I have a booth area that's called the website, S-I-G-H-T, at the side of the web, and it's a lot of cobweb. And what I started doing before was to, to give out information for my actors, if they were teaching or doing other shows at the time. And so for them to have their information in this, quote, website, at the side of the web. So now it's run by a couple by the name of DotMatrixCom and her husband SlashCom. Her family name is McIntosh, and I have her sisters and cousins running around. Slash's uh, uh, siblings are running around as well. Her uh, cousins, Printer Point McIntosh and uh, Monitor Click McIntosh. The idea is taking these modern things and making them the me- medieval. Talking about a hard drive. Well, your hard drive is your carriage. Your carriage wheel might be broken, so your hard drive is down. Who is by far your favorite character at the Medieval Festival? I have so many. Not only the characters that I've created, but also Robin Hood, the Sheriff of Nottingham, Sheriff of Nottingham's guards, Robin Hood's band members. Okay. Eileen, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. That's Eileen Merle Rao of the Fort Tryon Medieval Festival. It's not too often that you get a chance to hop the subway to the 15th century, so be sure to get out tomorrow to Fort Tryon Park. Coming up next week on Cityscape, we'll be back in the present day and exploring the varying degrees of culture shock. Until then, I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Remember, you can listen to an archived version of this or any cityscape at our website, wfuv.org. You'll also find a bulletin board where you can share your comments with us and other listeners. Have a good weekend. Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. The South Street Seaport Museum features a fleet of historic vessels that includes the 1911 sailing ship Peking. It's one of the 15 unique museums of Lower Manhattan. More information at museumsoflowermanhattan.org.